guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be back in 2020. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing changes except I don't know where to scroll on like filling out forms online, like the year. That's it. That's the only thing that changes for me. Yeah, I'm happy to have the holidays behind us. I had a pretty good Christmas. It was really not like the most spectacular one I think we've ever had, but it was still good. We spent time with family and it was great. So, but I'm happy that's behind us. I'm excited to move into a new year and I'm excited to be back into doing the show. I I enjoyed the break, but I like getting together and doing this with you. So this is awesome. First episode of the new year. I'm very excited. Let's kick it off strong, right? What do you say? Yeah. <laughs> well, we are Not certainly like the mess last year. <laughs> yeah. We're certainly going to try to kick it off strong. So before we get started, we just want to do a quick reminder that we will be at CrimeCon in May. Uh, it's May 1st through 3rd here in Orlando. And if you would like to get 10% off your standard badge to attend CrimeCon this year, you can use our code M and M2020. And yeah, I think I just said that. Yeah, 10% off your standard badge. Come to CrimeCon if you want to. It's super awesome. You won't regret it. No, absolutely not. And it's all caps and then it's all together, M and M 2020. I gave somebody the code earlier and gave them the wrong code. I won't even repeat what code I gave them because it was so far off and it will confuse people. Um, <laughs> but yes, it's all together, all in caps, M and M 2020. Yay. And we hope to see you there. We're super excited. Several people have told us they're coming and we are excited. Can't wait. Yeah, and we have a little graphic thing that we'll reshare. We've shared it on Instagram and our social medias already, but we'll share it again. So if you are looking for the code in writing to copy and paste or something like that, then you can find it there. So we will just get right into this week's episode. A couple months ago, we discussed the case of the cyber killer, John Robinson, who used the internet to lure several women to their demise during the 80s and 90s in Kansas. So this week, we're telling another tale of an internet-based murder, but instead of luring victims with the internet, this week's mastermind used the internet to manipulate a former law enforcement officer to commit murder. The crime took place in Flint, Michigan, and before we get into the story, we're going to tell you a little about Flint in this week's segment of We Googled This City. Flint is located 66 miles northwest of Detroit and is the largest city in the county of Janice and has a population of around 102,000 residents as of the 2010 census. Flint was founded in 1819 by a fur trader named Jacob Smith. Flint went through a few name changes before landing on Flint, including Grand Traverse. Is it Traverse or Traverse? I, I'll never get that word Traverse, right. Traverse, right? Yeah, it just doesn't come up that much, but every time I like anticipate getting it wrong. <laughs> so I like to just say both ways, just in case. I just think of the car, like the Chevy Traverse. Is that what it is? I don't like- know anything about cars. Good for you. I really, that like <laughs> do, did not did not register to me. I don't think I've ever even heard of that. So good job, Manny. I don't know anything, apparently. Todd's Crossing was another name for Flint, and I don't know who Todd is or what he was crossing. And does that even sound like a name from like the 1800s, Todd? Did you think there were any Todds around then? I did not. So there also had the name Flint River, and then it was eventually shortened to just be Flint in 1836. Flint was nicknamed Vehicle City after General Motors was founded in Flint in 1908, and the city became a manufacturing area for Buick and Chevrolet divisions. Filmmaker Michael Moore hails from Flint, and many of his documentaries were filmed in and around Flint, including some focused on the Flint water crisis. Actor Terry Crews, comedian Sandra Bernhard, and musician Mark Farner also call Flint home. 
If you don't recognize his name, Mark Farner was the guitarist and lead singer for the band Grand Funk Railroad. Are you familiar with Grand Funk Railroad, Mandy? I've heard of it. <laughs> hey, that's good. That's good. <laughs> um, but if you if you fall into the category of people who say, you know, Grand Funk, what now? I decided to look into it. My dad loved that band. He's seen them before. I think one of the guys was on Oxygen on the stage when my dad saw them. So they're definitely an older band. Um, but I looked into where they got their name and they got it from a play on words. Grand Trunk Western Railroad is a railroad that goes through Flint and Mark and a few of the other members were from the area, and thus Grand Funk Railroad was born. Oh. And of course, this got me thinking, Mandy. It made me think of how many other things could be Grand Funked to zazz them up. So Grand Funk, I think, makes everything sound a little cooler, or at least it did <laughs> in the 70s. <laughs> so, you know, if your engine's going bad on your car, what would be easier than to spend a few dollars at Grand Funk Auto Repair? I, I wouldn't, it would take the sting <laughs> out of it a little bit, right? Or when you go to the doctor and you're diagnosed with a case of Grand Funk UTI and you can clear it up with a little Grand Funk cranberry juice, you know, all of this just sounds so much better than than their typical names. And lastly, Mandy, in terms of culinary greatness, what sounds better than having a slice of Mandy's Grand Funk meat pie? <laughs> you have to start calling it Grand Funk meat pie. I think that's the greatest name in the entire world. <laughs> I absolutely will do that. That is the best. <laughs> sounds better than just Mandy's meat pie. Add, add a few superlatives in there and we'll go from there. That is luckily yeah. all I have to do there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Um, if you're in our Facebook group, then you saw on Christmas Eve, I actually went live in our group and made meat pie. And I think Melissa had a near-death experience during that entire process. So if you're in there and you didn't see it, you can go find it. If you're not in there, I guess you missed it. The meat pie did happen on Christmas and it was delicious. Thank you. Very happy for you. Grand Mandy's Grand Funk <laughs> meat pie. <laughs> it was February of 2000 when an unusual call came into a Michigan police department. There was a woman on the other end who identified herself as an attorney all the way in Missouri over 700 miles away. She was calling about information that she had been given about a possible murder that had taken place in Michigan a few months prior. This attorney explained to the Michigan police that a Missouri man named Jerry Cassidy, who was a former sheriff's deputy, had recently taken his own life and left behind some important information about the shooting death of a man there in Flint, Michigan. In the wake of Jerry's death, his brother Mike found a briefcase under Jerry's bed that included a suicide note. In this note, Jerry described the events that led to his decision to end his life and that it was primarily based on the fact that he had killed an innocent man and could not bear the guilt any longer. In the note, Jerry confessed that he had been having an ongoing love affair with Bruce's wife, Cherie, who eventually manipulated him into committing the murder. Michigan police confirmed that they did have an unsolved murder by a man of that name and they began to dig deeper into what happened in the case of Bruce Miller. In 1997, Bruce Miller was a pretty average 47-year-old man. He worked the third shift at an auto plant and also owned and operated a successful auto salvage business with a partner named John Hutchinson called B&D Auto Parts. Bruce was known around town as being a really hardworking guy. That year, which was 1997, he decided to hire a young bookkeeper at his junkyard named Cherie. Cherie was 26 years old and already experienced a really hard life after being sexually abused as a child and leaving home for good at just 16 years old. 
By the time she was 19, she was married with a baby, but was quickly divorced from her husband and spent several years in various relationships, which resulted in two more children. She was married for a second time to a really terrible man who was eventually convicted of child abuse after hitting their child hard enough to result in skull fractures and was also tried for sexually abusing Cherie's six-year-old daughter. So when she went to work for Bruce Miller in 1997, she was really in a pretty rough place and really in desperate need of stability. Cherie also had a bit of a wild side. She enjoyed indulging in alcohol and recreational drugs, and she really enjoyed getting attention from men. Once Cherie began her job at the salvage yard, the relationship between she and Bruce changed from being a professional one to a more flirtatious one. Bruce, who was single and as we said before, 47 years old, liked Cherie's bubbly personality, her youth, and he really liked her kids. He quickly fell in love with the idea of having a family, and Cherie fell in love with the idea of having a husband who could provide for her in a way that she was really desperate for. She loved visiting Bruce's home with her kids and letting them run free in the yard, and Bruce had this financial stability that she really wanted and needed to raise her three young children. In 1999, Bruce took things a step further and asked Cherie to marry him. Those who were close to the couple during this time said that Bruce was completely in love with Cherie, but she didn't seem to be quite as devoted. After the wedding, Cherie would pretty much act like she was still single and would openly flirt with other men. She continued to help out Bruce's businesses, but she also began selling Mary Kay cosmetics on the side. Bruce was supportive of this new endeavor and bought Cherie her own computer to use while working on her new business. Despite their marriage being off to a pretty good start and Cherie having everything she really dreamed of for herself and her kids, she was somehow still unfulfilled. Even Bruce's family could see that Cherie wasn't truly happy and that she even seemed to be taking advantage of Bruce, who was providing everything for her and allowing her to take out credit cards in her own name. Bruce was really all in with Cherie. He absolutely loved her and he defended her against his family and his friends and even suggested that she should take a girl's trip on his dime with a friend in July while he was off going to see a NASCAR race in another state. Cherie was really excited about taking this trip, and she took to the internet to look for vacation destinations, but she was quickly derailed when she saw an advertisement for an adult chat room. So this is all on AOL. So AOL chat rooms, Melissa, you've mentioned before that you love a good AOL chat room when you were younger. (laughs) My sister and I like to catfish people and tell them we were old men, which I don't know what our game plan was there, but... (laughs) We did like the oddest kind of catfishing. Yes, but that was like the fun thing to do at that time. You you could be whoever you wanted to be, which was an old man apparently, and talk to people and like no harm, no foul. It was before, you know, you were terrified of these things. But yeah, it was a huge deal. Yeah. So Cherie became addicted to spending time in these adult chat rooms and she eventually met a man by the screen name of Reno Dudes. So she began spending hours every day talking to this man, and the content of their messages wasn't exactly appropriate for the newly wedded Cherie. They sent hundreds of sexually charged instant messages back and forth and eventually moved on to sending each other pictures and explicit videos. Cherie had a lot of free time to spend talking to her new internet friend because Bruce was not home during the afternoon or at night since he worked the third shift at the auto plant. But even with Bruce being gone for much of the day, he still took a notice to his new wife's habit of spending so much time on the computer. 
To satisfy his curiosity about it all, one day he decided to log into Cherie's computer while she was not home, and he discovered all of these messages between his wife and this other man. When Bruce confronted Cherie about the messages, she insisted that everything was fine and he had absolutely nothing to worry about. She said that these messages that were back and forth were nothing more than this innocent flirtation. It was all a fantasy and it didn't mean anything to her. Bruce was obviously upset, but eventually he accepted her explanation. And a short time later, she informed him that she was going to be starting to take these frequent trips to Reno for these Mary Kay conventions. Now she's doing this business and she says there's going to be conventions. They're going to be in Reno. Of course, this raises red flags immediately since this guy that she's talking to online has a screen name Reno Dudes. And now she's saying she actually needs to go to Reno. So, of course, her husband is like, well, what is going on here? This is obviously there's a connection to this. But Cherie insisted that that was not the case and that. She wasn't going to be meeting up with him, so Bruce eventually agreed to let her take this trip. Of course, she did actually meet up with Reno Dudes, and his real name turned out to be Jerry Cassidy. And we're going to talk more about Jerry and who he was after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. Christmas may be over, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't treat yourself to something you actually wanted this holiday season. Check out Noemi. Noemi is luxury jewelry where everyone gets the friends and family treatment. When Noemi reached out to us, I quickly checked their website and I was amazed at what they offered. My eye immediately went to the adorable petite diamond band ring in 18 karat gold with beautiful sparkling diamonds encrusted in the band. Once I placed my order, I didn't have to wait long for it to arrive. It arrived two days later in an elegant box. Buying jewelry online can feel like a real gamble, right? It looks beautiful from your computer screen, but what happens if you order it and you don't like it? Luckily, with Noemi, it's really different. You can return any order for a full refund, even engravings and custom designs. It's literally an entirely risk-free experience. Noemi features solid 18-karat gold for the perfect balance of both strength and purity and is the only fine jewelry company offering such incredible quality at this price. If you're looking for quality fine jewelry made to last a lifetime from a luxury brand you can trust, it's Noemi. They have thousands of five-star reviews online, and we suggest you read some and see why people are raving about this company. Go to hellonoemi.com moms to see their collections and get $50 off your first purchase with promo code moms. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-O-E-M-I-E dot com slash moms. And don't forget to use promo code moms for $50 off your first purchase. We are back in the new year talking to you guys about Third Love Bras, and that's because Third Love makes bras we both absolutely love. A few weeks ago, I ordered my third Third Love Bra, say that three times fast, and that's because my experience with their bras has been so great. So I decided to go big and get a strapless bra, something I've avoided my entire adult life because frankly, they're uncomfortable as all get out, but not this time because Third Love does bras differently. Their bras are designed with measurements from millions of women, so their bra styles are made to fit your life, not the other way around. Third Love bras aren't just pretty to look at. With amazing quality, they are also hands down the most comfortable bra you'll ever own. With lightweight, super thin memory foam cups that mold to your shape, as well as straps that won't slip and tagless labels so you aren't contorting your arm to scratch that one weird spot in your back where other bras put their tags. Third Love has a Fit Finder quiz over 15 million women have taken to date, and it helps you find your perfect bra style as well as size. We both took the quiz, and it's super easy and fun and really helpful in finding your perfect fit. 
And if you aren't totally satisfied with your purchase, every third love bra is backed by their perfect fit promise, which means you have 60 days to wash it and wear it. And if you don't love it, returns are always free. Third love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 15% off today. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about how Sheree Miller was going off to Reno to meet her internet love interest under the guise of going there on business for a Mary Kay convention. So side note, I did sell Mary Kay for about six months and they do have conventions, but they don't have like regular conventions. They're like annual conventions. I don't know how you can even make this going on. You're not going to a convention for Mary Kay. Yeah, not not every month or whatever. Once in Reno, Cherie finally met Jerry Cassidy face-to-face after already having sent sexually explicit instant messages back and forth over AOL Instant Messenger. Jerry was a 39-year-old former sheriff's deputy who spent nine years doing what he loved, fighting crime and catching bad guys. He eventually achieved the rank of lieutenant and had dreams of going on to work for the FBI. He was a lively person with a zest for life and the ability to really make anyone laugh. In 1994, his dreams of advancing his law enforcement career came to a halt when he exposed some wrongdoing within his police department. He was essentially shunned at this point and eventually resigned from the police force. Following the loss of his career, his wife left him and took their son. Feeling defeated, Jerry turned to drugs and alcohol and found himself in Reno looking for a fresh start. He took a job as a pit boss in Harris Casino, but he struggled financially. Much like Cherie, Jerry had also discovered AOL chat rooms and spent a lot of his time in them, which is how they came to know each other. Over the short time that Jerry and Cherie had been communicating online, she led him to believe that she was a really wealthy business owner who owned a nursing home on the East Coast, which, by the way, is kind of a weird thing to be like, I'm wealthy because I own a nursing home. (laughs) So she also told Jerry that she was married to a man with disabilities and that they lived with his brother, but that once he passed away, she would be free to pursue Jerry. Jerry was fine with all this, and he became really smitten with Cherie. When she visited in Reno for the first time, she spent five days there, which is a very long time for a Mary Kay conference, for goodness sakes, and the two of them even went and looked at luxury homes in the $1.5 million range, which Cherie led him to believe that she could afford. So after that first trip to Reno, Jerry was already hooked. He continued to talk to Cherie online, but Cherie began making more frequent trips back and forth to Reno to see Jerry in person. Bruce tolerated this behavior, and outwardly, the family really looked completely normal and happy. Bruce was even looking into adopting Cherie's three children. But little did Bruce know that Cherie was getting deeper and deeper involved with Jerry, and her many lies were starting to get out of hand. Not only did Cherie appeal to Jerry's sexual side by sending him countless photos and videos, as well as these explicit messages, and even messages professing her love for him, but she also told him many, many lies about her home life. She told Jerry that her husband was physically and sexually abusive and would even use makeup to make herself look like she had been badly beaten and then take photos and send them to Jerry to deceive him into thinking that she was, you know, having this really terrible life at home. At the end of the summer, Cherie told Jerry that she had gotten pregnant with his baby, but that Bruce had raped her so forcefully that she miscarried the pregnancy. Jerry was 
devastated, but he didn't suffer for long because just a month later, Cherie told him that she was pregnant again, only this time she said that it was with twins. Jerry was ecstatic at the idea of Cherie having his children. He had no way of knowing at this time that she actually had her tubes tied after the birth of her third child and that both of the times that she claimed to have been pregnant with his babies were a lie. Cherie sent Jerry fake sonogram photos and took photos of herself with a padded stomach area to create this illusion that she was in fact pregnant. Jerry was very supportive and reassured Cherie that they would have this beautiful life together and that she could move in with him and they could be together as a family. At this point, Cherie changes up her story and she says that her husband is not actually disabled, but that he was in the mafia and that if she tried to leave, he would have her killed. Oh, I was just going to say this is quite a jump from my husband is doing these things to me and, you know, this is a terrible situation to, oh, actually, he's in the mafia. Forgot to mention that little tidbit. He's going to try and kill you if I, or, you know, try and kill me if I leave. That's just a lot of extremes going on in this situation. Right. Yeah. So at this point, you might be asking, you know, how in the world is a former police officer falling for any of this? And how did he not see right through Cherie's lies and her manipulation tactics? But he was truly in love with her. And also he was in the throes of an alcohol and drug addiction. So he's not really thinking clearly. He's blinded by this woman who's giving him all this attention. She's going back and forth and he's really enjoying the time that he spends with her. He is not seeing things clearly at all at this point. So meanwhile, Cherie has also set up a fake email account that she used to pretend as if she were her husband, Bruce, and she sent threatening emails to Jerry, including one where, you know, Bruce, who's really Cherie, claims that Cherie was going to get an abortion. And Jerry made these, you know, frantic attempts to get in touch with Cherie and was sending her messages that were really from a place of sincere concern. One of the messages read, quote, I'm beginning to worry. Where are you, honey? I love you. A few days later, another email allegedly from Bruce, but we know it was, you know, from Cherie, showed up. And in this email, he claimed that Cherie had gotten this abortion and then everything went well. But then later that evening, Cherie sent Jerry photos where it looked like she had been badly beaten. And she went on to tell Jerry that she had sadly miscarried their twins after Bruce had gotten some of his mafia people to violently rape her. So this is now the second time that she's saying she's lost a pregnancy in such a horrific way. Upon hearing the news that his babies were gone, something inside of Jerry snapped and he wanted revenge on Bruce for what he believed he had done to Cherie and their unborn babies. It was really the perfect storm for Cherie to step in and facilitate a murder plot against Bruce. All she really had to do was bring up the idea of having him killed, and Jerry was all ears. Cherie provided Jerry with all of the information he needed to murder her husband. She gave detailed directions for how to get to Bruce's office and information about how to get in and what time to go, you know, to go there to pull this off. On November 8th, 1999, Jerry set out to murder a man and to free his internet girlfriend from the abuse that he believed she was suffering, with the hopes of this fairy tale ending in which the two of them would be together and live a happy life. At around 6.30 p.m., Jerry arrived at B&D Auto Salvage Yard and parked in a convenient location. He entered the building carrying a 20-gauge shotgun and crept into the office where Bruce was sitting. 
Just as quickly as Jerry had entered the room, he pulled the trigger and shot Bruce in the neck and upper chest, killing him instantly. The blast was actually so strong that it knocked Bruce off the chair he was sitting on. Before fleeing the scene, Jerry sold $2,000 in cash and a stack of payroll checks, which actually Cherie had told him to take prior to him um, arriving there. Once the murder was complete, it was time for Cherie to switch into the concerned wife role, and when Bruce didn't return home from work that night, she called his brother and claimed to be worried about Bruce because he hadn't arrived home. Bruce's brother Chuck and his wife Judy got in their car and drove out to the salvage yard to check on Bruce themselves. Side note here, how terrible is it she knows what they're going to find and to send his brother there and that's the last way he sees of his brother? Yes, I know. I thought of that too. Yeah, that's just terrible that she would send her his own brother there whenever she knows. And I read something that said Sheree actually spoke with Bruce on the phone really just minutes before the murder mm. took place. She, I think later on, it came out that she actually had spoke to him on the phone like right before. So it's just terrible all around. Yeah, she definitely knew what was happening and did nothing. Yeah. And she could have been the one that said, you know what? I'm going to go up to the, I'm going to go up to the salvage yard. I'll do it. Like just to, to have any compassion for anybody else, you know, I just, I don't know that kind of thing. The whole thing is obviously very upsetting, but you know, that's like one extra stab in the back to do that to somebody, to make him be the one that has to see this, you know, terrible thing, his brother in this terrible position. So when they arrived, everything appeared normal and they saw Bruce's car still in the parking lot. They assumed he was just in the office later than usual, but when they went inside the building, they were horrified to see Bruce lying on the ground in a pool of blood behind the desk. At first, Chuck and Judy believed that Bruce had suffered a heart attack at work and had possibly fallen and hit his head. When Judy dialed 911, that's actually what she told the operator that she believed had happened. But when investigators arrived at the scene, they knew immediately that they were not dealing with a medical emergency but a murder. The details of what happened in the aftermath of Bruce's death are bizarre and shocking, and we're going to get right back into it after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. Some people have trouble falling asleep, some people have trouble staying asleep, and some people have trouble with both. On average, people are getting less quality sleep than ever before. I fall into that people having trouble falling asleep group. I am a classic warrior and my mind doesn't shut off, so it takes me forever just to fall asleep. So I was super excited when we were introduced to Rimrise. Rimrise is a personalized sleep solution that uses natural plant-based formulas that can help calm your mind, relax your body, and get that circadian rhythm back on track so you get better and more restorative sleep. I really love that my Rimrise solution called Peace of Mind did just that. It was like the comfort of watching 20 episodes of The Office in a row without the 10 hours that would take, and it helped me get to sleep much easier than normal. Remrise is different than other sleep solutions, since it's drug-free, which means you are left with no groggy side effects the next morning. All you need to do is go to getremrise.com slash momsandmurder and take their free sleep quiz. I took the quiz myself and found out that my sleep profile is the always-on type. I tend to lay in bed thinking about all the things I have to do, stressing out about them, and therefore I cannot fall asleep. Remrise recommended their solution, Power Off, to help me tune out my thoughts and get to sleep quicker. Do what we did and check out Remrise today. Go to getremrise.com slash momsandmurder, take their sleep quiz, and when you sign up, you'll get your first week of Remrise free. Just pay shipping. You won't find an offer like this anywhere else. Get your first week of Remrise for free when you sign up at getremrise.com slash momsandmurder. Getremrise.com slash momsandmurder. 
It's a new year and that means we all have new goals. Why not add hair goals to the list? Function of Beauty makes it easy to live your best hair life in 2020. Function of Beauty is the internet's top rated customized hair care brand. It doesn't matter whether you have curly hair or straight, natural or processed, every bottle is based on your unique hair type, style preferences, and hair goals. Once you've taken the short and fun hair quiz, you can customize your bottle even further by selecting a fun color and fragrance for your products. Once your unique formula has been packaged, your name is printed on the bottle for a final personalized touch. I have been loving my Function of Beauty shampoo and conditioner these past few months. My hair is getting longer, and that means it needs a little boost in specific areas to keep it growing healthy and strong. I took the hair quiz and was able to select five hair goals. In my case, I chose strengthen, lengthen, thermal protection, anti-frizz, and hydrate. My special formula is exactly what I need and somehow still the best smelling shampoo and conditioner that I've ever used. I chose their pear scent, but there are other fragrances that I can't wait to try. And if fragrance isn't for you, they also offer their products fragrance and dye free. To get started right now, go to functionofbeauty.com moms to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Don't spend another minute in hair misery. Go to functionofbeauty.com moms to let them know we sent you. That's functionofbeauty.com moms. And now back to the episode. Before we took the break, Bruce Miller had just been discovered dead in his office by his brother and sister-in-law, and the police began an investigation into what they believed was a murder. Almost immediately, it was thought that Bruce was killed in some type of robbery gone wrong. They were led to believe this because of the missing money and checks. But aside from the missing cash, there really wasn't anything else to even suggest a robbery, and there wasn't even any clues to go on any other theory. Detectives went to the Miller home to inform Cherie that her husband was dead. When she heard the news, she broke down crying, and police believed that her reaction was genuine and appropriate for the news that she was being given. They had no real suspects in the murder, but Cherie seemed to be off their radar entirely at this point. In the days following the murder, Cherie's behavior was extremely strange for a woman who just lost her new husband. Just two days after he was found dead, Cherie was spotted at a bar dancing provocatively and flirting with men. Even the police thought she was behaving in a way that wasn't really typical of a newly widowed woman, but her alibi for the night of the murder was airtight, and they had no evidence to suggest that she had anything to do with this murder at all. The investigation mostly focused on the theory that Bruce's business partner, John Hutchinson, had been the one to kill him. As it turned out, both Bruce and John were being investigated by the Janice County Auto Investigation Network for tampering with vehicle identification numbers, and John was charged with two felony counts but pled guilty to a misdemeanor. According to John's brother, who also worked at the salvage yard, John had previously, you know, he was upset about this and had made these comments about disposing of Bruce. Furthermore, John's stepson told police that John was not home between 5.30 and 7.30 that evening and that he was acting strangely when he did come home. So the police believe they were really on to something with this theory. And of course, you know, we know that Cherie is the one who orchestrated this and it was, you know, it was her boyfriend, Jerry, who did the murder. But can you imagine being that guy, John Hutchinson, after you've said these crazy things and then like you weren't home when you were supposed to be that evening and now the police are looking at you and like you look really bad, but like you didn't actually kill anyone? No, 
No, I'm terrified every time I send my husband like a weird message or you, and it just sounds like, you know, I'm just saying something for the shock value. Like this is going to come back and bite my butt. If anything happens to anyone in the next day, they'll be like, she was acting really weird and saying really crazy things. And I never have, what's my alibi ever? I was at home. Nobody's going to buy that. Nobody's (laughs) at home as often as I am. As for Jerry Cassidy, he fled after the shooting and returned to his home in Reno, where he continued to contact Cherie. It's clear from the instant messages that Jerry believed Cherie was going to be with him and that he was madly in love with her. He's just killed a man for her. But Cherie doesn't seem to have the same plan. Almost immediately after Jerry returned home from murdering Bruce, Cherie started cutting off communication with him. She would take longer and longer to respond, and her messages were sounding less and less like she had any type of plan to make a life with Jerry, as he had been led to believe and was the entire reason why he was doing any of this. So that's kind of what I don't understand. Why wouldn't you, if you're playing this game, if she's playing this game, why wouldn't you play it a little longer? Why would you let him do this and then be like, "Mm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to even be with you. You'd think that would I mean, obviously, if he says that he did something, that he's going to go to jail. So I guess she does have him, you know, on that. But it does seem like you're just poking the bear at that point. Like, he can get you right in jail as well. It it just seems crazy that immediately she'd be like, not interested. Sorry, thanks, but no thanks. That's crazy. As Bruce's wife, Cherie was awarded many of his assets following his death. She received the junkyard business, which she sold, as well as a bank account with $16,000 in it and $80,000 of insurance. On January 10th, 2000, Jerry sent a lengthy email to Cherie telling her that he was still waiting for her and that he had these expectations of her after doing what she wanted in regards to killing Bruce. In one section, he wrote, quote, you told me time and time again of how well off you were, how you had what seemed to me like unlimited funds. You told me of account after account, funds after funds, stocks, IRAs, trust funds, businesses, and homes, end quote. Meanwhile, Cherie had already moved on with a new boyfriend and moved him into her home, a man by the name of Jeff Foster, and she was distancing herself more and more from Jerry and even somewhat taunted him about her new boyfriend, which just blows my mind why she would do this. So as his relationship with Cherie began to crumble, Jerry turned back to drugs and alcohol to cope with the loss of what he thought was a great love in his life. He moved back to Missouri, where he tried to come to terms with everything that had happened, but the guilt of murdering someone combined with the depression over losing Cherie eventually caught up with him. On a February day in 2000, Jerry decided to take his own life. But before he did so, he put together all the evidence police would need to charge Cherie in the murder. Jerry printed out pages of transcripts of his instant message conversations with Cherie, including one in which he marked by hand the very moment that he and Cherie plotted the murder together. He also left an emotional suicide note in which he apologized numerous times to his family, especially his mom, and he explained, you know, what actually happened from his perspective. He wrote about how he was madly in love with Cherie and was blinded by his feelings for her and how he believed that she had lost two pregnancies and how he had wanted those babies, and how he drove to Flint and murdered Bruce because he believed it would solve all the problems. He believed she was being abused. Like, he believed a bunch of crazy things that she very much told him were true, and he does all this under the guise that he's saving her, really. He thinks he's saving her and getting her out of this terrible situation. 
He stated that he chose to take his own life instead of going to prison, but he wanted to make sure Cherie was punished for her actions as well, and that's why he was leaving behind all this evidence to prove it. Jerry puts all of this inside of a briefcase, and he placed four sealed envelopes on top of it. One of the envelopes was addressed to an attorney, and the other three were addressed to his son, his ex-wife, and his parents. The letter to his parents is considered the quote-unquote suicide note because that's the one where he outlines what happened that led to his suicide. Also inside the briefcase were computer disks that had all of the images and videos that Cherie had sent him over the course of their affair. Once Michigan authorities had a chance to review the shocking new evidence they had just been presented, they filed charges against Cherie and went to arrest her on February 22, 2000, over three months after Bruce had been killed. When the police went looking for Cherie, she wasn't there, and they soon learned that she had actually taken a trip to Reno with her new boyfriend. Police were able to track down her flight information, and they were waiting to arrest her at the airport when she landed. Cherie was 27 years old when she was taken into custody and charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. She maintained her innocence and was held without bond until her trial began in December of 2000. This story made national headlines. Of course, it's like the perfect storm for a media circus when you have all these different things going on. And and this, this, you can see how this would be breaking news, you know, all over the place. So the prosecution made the case that Cherie wanted her husband dead so that she could have his money and that simply getting a divorce would not have given her everything she wanted. Keep in mind, they were only married for seven months at this point. I mean, they had barely... The ink was barely dry on their marriage certificate. That was their theory, that she was just after his money and, you know, the stability that that could provide her. But she really just wanted to go and live her own life. So it took three days of deliberation before the jury returned with a verdict. They found Cherie guilty on both charges, and the judge sentenced her to life in prison for the conspiracy to commit murder charge, plus 54 to 81 years for the second degree murder charge. While in prison, Cherie really didn't suffer too much in terms of her love life. She continued to attract male admirers from behind bars, and one of them was a man named Michael DeNoyer, who saw Cherie on an episode of Snapped and decided to contact her in jail. He says that he saw something in her eyes that broke his heart, so he decided to write her a letter. And she responded to this letter in 2008, and soon after, this man went to visit her at the prison, where he proposed to her... On the first visit, the first time he ever saw her in person, and she accepted it, and the two of them got married. Listen, I don't find this shocking at all because I watch Love After Lockup, and this is just another Friday night. This is this is what you're <laughs> missing if you're not watching Love After Lockup. That's just how it happens. <laughs> so in the years following Cherie's conviction, she maintained her innocence and filed an appeal. And in August of 2008, her conviction was actually overturned by a federal court judge after he ruled that Jerry's suicide note and the photos and instant message transcripts should not have been allowed in the trial. In 2009, after spending nine years behind bars, Cherie was released from prison while she awaited her second trial. The appeals process in this case took several years, and Cherie was living as a free woman during that entire time. It was about three years. 
In 2010, Cherie appeared on Dateline. This is in the time that she is out of prison. This is when she's been released from prison. She's awaiting trial. Now she's going on Dateline, giving an interview. And she talks about her innocence and how she's been wronged by the court system. And she's Mm. doing all this appeals. And, you know, I didn't actually watch that Dateline. I did read. I found a transcript of that Dateline. So I read over a little bit of it. I didn't actually watch it. But, yeah, she was actually going on there talking about her innocence and how she was the one, she was a victim in this case. There was another case I saw um, a few years ago and the personalities are sort of similar to me and I wish I could remember, but I know the same person was like awaiting trial and they were able to pull her stuff that she spoke to, I think it was 48 hours, and say like, look at all these times she like, you know, spoke against herself. It just seems so risky that you would come out and be like, I'm still waiting trial, but what else do you want to know? I'll tell you everything. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is very, I guess, like egotistical to do something like that, to go on like Dateline whenever you know, like you know what you did. And it's just so, Mm -hmm. it's crazy to me to think about going on there anyway and trying to like make yourself look better, I guess. I don't know. It's crazy. Right. Finally, on August 2nd, 2012, the court entered its final opinion, which was that the suicide note was admissible in court. So at that moment, Cherie's bond was revoked and she was immediately returned to prison to continue serving out her sentence. But that's not quite the end of the story. In late spring of 2016, which was nearly 17 years after the murder, Cherie did something you don't see very often. She actually submitted a written confession to the judge. In this letter, she said that she had spent years blaming this judge for her incarceration, but after she was released and spent those three years as a free woman, she returned to prison and she came to accept responsibility for her own actions. She said that she was ready to tell the truth and that she was told by several attorneys that she was not allowed to admit guilt, but she decided she had enough and decided to write the judge herself. She said point blank that she was responsible for coercing Jerry into murdering her husband and that she had ample time to put a stop to it, but she didn't. She admitted that she had been living two separate lives and that things had gotten too deep and she thought murdering Bruce was a good way out. Towards the end of the four-page letter, she told the judge that Bruce was really a good man and the only one who ever truly loved her and her children and that she was deeply sorry for what she had done. She asked the judge to please pass on the message to Bruce and Jerry's family so that they could finally have some closure and begin to heal. It's really great that she had all this to say. Man, do you wish things would have, you know, ended differently if she would have said, hey, actually, this is a terrible idea. You know, let's continue our affair, whatever. But he doesn't deserve this. He's the only person that's ever been good to me. And my kids, he's been good to your kids. He wanted to adopt your kids. What's I don't get that. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's totally a thing though. You hear, I mean, you don't hear, it's not every day that you hear about like an internet affair that turns into a murder or anything, but I feel like you do hear these stories where people get really caught up in these like other lives and like it really, it's, it does like it ruins their real life and they like make crazy decisions. And so it's, I don't know. It's just such a frustrating story. Like you said, because she, you know, after years and years of being in prison, she finally, I guess, you know, admitted to what she did and she felt bad and remorseful. And it is really nice that she wanted to give the family a little bit of closure. But one of the things that she said in the letter was that something that hit her really hard was one day her daughter and granddaughter visited her in the prison and she was watching how hard it was for her daughter to leave, you know, with her there being in behind bars and her daughter was really upset and was crying. And um, in this letter to the judge, she said, in that moment, 
she thought, you know, wow, like at least my daughter can come here and see me. Like these people Mm. will never see their family members again. And, you know, even though I am here, I can still see my, my daughter and my granddaughter, but you know, the families of Jerry and Bruce, like they will never see them again. So she said that was kind of her moment of, I guess her moment of truth, um, you know, what have you. And that's why she decided to just write the confession, but Yeah. yeah, just terrible all around. Yeah. It's great that I guess I hate to use the word great. Um, I guess if it brings peace to their family, that's wonderful. And it's, it is great that she took responsibility for it, but man, if you just figured this out, you know, years before. So it's the beginning of the month and the beginning of the year. Yay. And so we have our hero segment. So I'm going to read this pretty quickly. And this is our hero of the month. If you have one to submit to us, you can um, send it to last thing before we go at gmail.com. Can you believe that that was not an email address that was already taken? (laughs) (laughs) I'm as shocked as you are. So it says, hello, ladies. First, I love your podcast. Great way to get your thing picked, by the way. Tell us you love our podcast. (laughs) and (laughs) You moved to the top of the list. Now my hero. My hero is my daughter, Kelsey. She's a first responder in British Columbia, Canada. She began her journey as a junior firefighter in our hometown at 16. We had a devastating few years of wildfires in our area and absolutely terrified her. So to get over her fear, she wanted to learn the dynamics of fire. From the guidance she received from the fire department, she decided to join our highway rescue and extrication team. She applied on her 18th birthday and three days later was in a course to learn the ropes of using the jaws of life, airbag lifts, ropes, rigging, etc. Upon graduation from high school, she applied for and excelled in a paramedic EMT course and has been a paramedic now for over a year and a half. She's not even 22 and has seen more devastation, accidents, and death than I can even imagine. She's ran out the door to help strangers during Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving, even her birthday. She's the most selfless, giving, and caring girl that I'm so proud to call my daughter. Only a few weeks ago, she came upon a horrible accident involving a family of five and a young man her age, which sadly, the young man and a four-year-old little girl lost their lives. After attending to the father, who was injured badly until the ambulance arrived, she wasn't even on call. She was just out for a drive. She held the older brother, consoling him over the loss of of his sister. So she is my hero, a dedicated listener, another good thing to add in there, Christy S. Isn't that so great? Yes, that is really amazing. I mean, in my early 20s, I was not doing anything incredible. At 18 to figure out that you want to do that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's so awesome. Yes, and such a a great career. And if you have a heart for that, it's, you know, we need those people. So yes, definitely a hero. Absolutely. I'm in my late 30s and I'm not even doing anything to help people. So this is literally (laughs) amazing. I think this is so cool and so great of her mom to want to recognize her like that. That's that's a great mother-daughter relationship. I love that. So thank you so much for sending that in. Again, send those to lastthingbeforewego at gmail.com. We have several more in there, so we're just kind of going through them. And we will do another one at the beginning of next month. And lastly, our friend Morph from Criminology and every show you listen to that isn't <laughs> ours, he is helping produce a new, <laughs> a new show. And we want to play a preview of that. It just launched on January 2nd called Scene of the Crime. In season one, the podcast takes a deep dive into the still unsolved murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams in Delphi, Indiana. So make sure you guys give it a listen. I went to the Delphi what do you call that thing? Like a meeting at CrimeCon, a panel. And it was pretty amazing and just heart-wrenching to hear it. So this is definitely one I want to check out and we hope you guys will as well. Yeah. 
Okay, so that was the show for this week, guys. We are so happy to be back in 2020, and we will be now here with you on a weekly schedule for the foreseeable future. We will let you know when we're taking a break again, but it won't be for a long time. Yay. Yay. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Coming up in Season 1 of Scene of the Crime, Delphi. Why Libby? Why Abby? Why Delphi? Those girls loved each other. They were good friends. Neither one of them left each other's side. Both those girls are heroes. Before the words came out, I knew. I knew this was not good. Purse and phone was thrown over the fence. As soon as I saw that, I knew something really bad happened. The detectives were like, this is not going to take that long. It's a small town. Somebody's going to say something, and this is all going to be over soon. The first couple of weeks, that's what it felt like, is that any day now. And then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks turned into a couple of months. My biggest fear is that whoever did this would do it again. I don't want that to happen to another family, because I'm telling you, as hell. There was no logical reason anybody would have known those girls would be there that day. Child abduction murders in and of themselves are incredibly rare, but the abduction of two children at one time is even rarer. I've only seen a couple in my entire career. There is a lot of crime scene evidence. Uh, some of it is somewhat odd. Shortly after solving the Golden State Killer case, I did speak with an investigator that was involved with the Delphi murders. If you haven't walked across the bridge, you don't understand, right? Yeah, like that bridge but is scary. It is scary, and those railroad ties are rotted. That bridge scares me, so yeah. for somebody to be able to cross it, he's moving well enough that he has to know the bridge. He's done that before. It could have been any one of our kids. It could have been anyone at the bridge that day. It's hard for me to believe that anybody could do something so bizarre and horrible and not feel compelled to tell somebody about it. Those two young girls were everybody's daughter. I refuse to accept evil as a standard bearer in American society. I believe we're one piece of the puzzle away from figuring out who this individual is. To the killer who may be in this room, do you want to know what we know? And one day, you will. You've just listened to a short preview of Scene of the Crime Season 1, Delphi. Be sure to subscribe right now wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.